So this week we continue our sermon series that we're calling, Do I Have to Believe That? Now in some ways I say we're picking up right where we left off last week after Meg engaged predestination. Now today though we're taking on the topic of hell and judgment. Who's excited? Now, if I, if I get to frame the question, is it true that some are climbing a stairway to heaven? Is it also true that others are on a highway to hell? Where are my guitar solos? I thought we worked on this. It may be tempting to say, you know, let's just discard this whole hell concept. But, as we've already experienced, there are far too many places in Scripture that do refer to some kind of judgment. Jesus painted pictures of a place of darkness where there's weeping and the gnashing of teeth. The rich man and Lazarus are separated by some fiery chasm that cannot be crossed. And our second reading today comes from the book of Revelation, the 21st chapter. But before we read, I'm going to invite you to bow your heads with me and pray. God, your word is a lamp and your word is a light. And sometimes it illuminates some unsettling things. We know you to be perfect justice and perfect mercy. Help us strike the proper balance. Amen. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And in the spirit, he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It has the glory of God and a radiance like a very rare jewel. It has a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and on the gates, are inscribed the names of the twelve tribes of the Israelites. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. People will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who practices abominations or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I just want to know if I ruined my chance, he asked me. 
His emotions were running really close to the surface. I love my wife. I love my daughter more than anything. But what if all the things I've done will keep me away from them for eternity? Will I be shut out on the other side of the door forever? It was approaching 11 p.m. at the end of a very long Sunday. Probably not the best time to start this conversation, but his tone on the voicemail had sounded sufficiently despondent. The voice belonged to Jason. He was a a student in the youth group I led many years ago. I still remember him as this rambunctious, spiky-haired seventh grader who would jump up in the middle of a serious conversation and belt out, I tell you what I want, what I really, really want. I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. Yeah, as the Spice Girls, so that should tell you how long ago this was. But as I pressed the call button on my cell phone, I wondered what would make that kid, now a grown man, sound so weary when he said that he needed to talk. It didn't take long to realize that Jason was having something of a crisis of faith, but it's not that he was losing his faith. The problem was more that his faith terrified him. See, a a friend of his had suddenly died the week before, a massive heart attack while fixing breakfast. And just like that, he was gone. And on the one hand, Jason was sad about losing his friend, but the whole episode got him thinking about his own mortality. And one thing leads to another, and before he knew it, Jason was face to face with his own sense of shame, his regret over a past that he could not change. Jarrett, he said, I just can't tell you how shallow I was. I was the most selfish person I've ever known. And I'd love to tell you it's because my parents didn't hug me enough, but my parents are great. My family is great. I can't explain how, but for a while there, I was living for nobody but myself. So tell me it's not too late to undo that. It was an intense conversation, quite a knot to untie. He was visibly, viscerally afraid of what might happen to him if he died, scared that his mistakes were beyond repair, that he was beyond repair. Now I doubt many of us are paralyzed by this question on a daily basis. I'm pretty sure Jason himself is not paralyzed by this question on a daily basis, but for whatever reason, he was paralyzed by it at this moment. And after pulling on several of the strings of this theological knot, trying to get at where this was all coming from, where did these ideas get planted into his head? I finally asked him the question, Jason, what do you do with this guilt, with this shame? Where, where is it coming from, biblically, spiritually? And even as I asked that question, I found myself thinking about that story in the Gospel of Luke about a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. The two men both die, and they find their roles quite reversed in the afterlife. Poor, penniless Lazarus finds comfort in the presence of Abraham. The self-centered rich man finds himself in fiery torment. Between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you 
cannot do so. Now, with stories like this forming our idea of the afterlife, it's no wonder Jason was having trouble sleeping. Which side of the chasm do I belong on? Have I already reached the point of no return? Can I come back from the person I once was? And I confess, listening to Jason agonize about this over the phone stirred within me a certain sense of revulsion. I don't know if you can relate to that, but here's a a young man who was an exceptionally wonderful adolescent. I loved him dearly. And here's a young man now who is a devoted husband and father. And because he had a few years of selfish, self-centered living, he's up at night worrying about his eternal soul. The idea of God condemning someone like Jason to an eternity of torment, well, that just affronted my sense of compassion. If God cannot be merciful, then what hope is there? And though I I remained calm and receptive on the phone, inside I was screaming, come on! Faith is supposed to set you free, not cripple you with guilt, with shame. And yet, I cannot argue with the fact that God does indeed judge. It's written all over the pages of Scripture, and we cannot just reach for the scissors because we find certain parts distasteful. Our calling is not to remove that which we find revolting. Our calling is to wrestle with any and every part of Scripture until it yields blessing. And I believe that this book is meant to bless not curse. Rob Bell was an emerging evangelical superstar a number of years ago. He helmed a mega church in Michigan that attracted 10,000 worshipers each weekend. I bet we can now do that next week. <laughs> you with me? Some hailed him as the next Billy Graham. All of that changed, though, when he published his book, Love Wins, in 2015. In that book, he wondered aloud whether a loving God would actually condemn billions of souls to eternal torment. The evangelical church wrote him off, labeled him a heretic. Much of that prestige in evangelical circles, at least, evaporated overnight. In one chapter of his book, Bell asks his readers to take a good, long look at this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It's easy to read this parable as a a simple tale of moral reversal, right? Of the tables turning in favor of the poor, of the rich getting exactly what they deserve. But if the judgment of God does nothing but turn the tables, then I say that's far too small a vision for the life of the world to come. That's not good news. That's just revenge, Plain and simple. If you take a closer look, the problem with the rich man is not that he's rich. It's that he had Lazarus sitting right outside his gate every day, and he never saw him. He never truly saw him, not as a human being at least. Lazarus was always something less, fit for nothing but the scraps, no more worthy of attention than the stray dogs that would come and lick his sores. The rich man is blind to poor Lazarus. And in the afterlife, 
in spite of the dramatic reversal of fates, in spite of the fact that he is in torment, and in spite of the fact that he can look right over there and see Lazarus cradled like a beloved child in the arms of Father Abraham, in spite of all that, the rich man is still blind. Even now he cannot see Lazarus as his equal. Apart from the flames, nothing seems to have changed for this rich man. Now, what would lead us to assume as much about this man? That's by the way he issues orders for Lazarus to do this and for Lazarus to do that. Send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and cool my tongue. Send Lazarus to my brothers, the ones who are my equals, with a message of warning. Come here, go there, serve me. Even in fiery torment, the man still sees himself as better than Lazarus. Now, would that this rich man could see himself as we, the readers, can see him. Well, maybe to borrow the words from my friend Jason, maybe he too might say, you know, I was the most selfish person I've ever known. So is there a great chasm set between the rich man and Lazarus? One that cannot be crossed? Yeah, you bet there is. But that chasm is not of God's design. That chasm exists in the heart of that nameless rich man. Call it a failure of imagination on his part, but he will not be able to build a bridge to cross that chasm until he understands that Lazarus is, in fact, his equal. If not in this world, then most certainly in the world to come. Bell suggests that the chasm can always be crossed. Anybody is welcome, but not until the one being judged can leave behind the baggage of this world. The assumptions, the prejudices, the categories of us and them that blind us to our common humanity. Those things simply will not fit in the kingdom of heaven. That's something that our reading from Revelation 21 picks up on. Amidst all that talk about the glittering jewels of the new Jerusalem, amidst all that beauty and finery, there's this troubling detail about those who are cast into the lake of fire. The cowards, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, the sorcerers, sorry Dumbledore, the idolaters, and all the liars. That's a big list. It's the kind of list that, well, if you're having a moment like my friend Jason, it's the kind of list that might keep you up at night wondering, are they talking about me? But I do have to wonder, maybe it's not those people who aren't allowed into the kingdom of heaven. Maybe it's just that those behaviors cannot survive in heaven. The behaviors are what will be consumed in the lake of fire. It's not unlike our crawling tube brought to us compliments of University Presbyterian Preschool. You, by all means, you are welcome to come in, but you cannot bring that baggage with you. You cannot take all the lies and the artifice that we employ to feel superior to others. You cannot take the unfaithfulness that erodes our relationships. You cannot take that urge to see another person destroyed. 
You cannot take the prejudice that fuels hatred. You'll have to check every bit of that at the door. Tucked away in this image of final judgment right there in Revelation chapter 21, verse 25, it's easy to miss. But it says of the new Jerusalem, its gates will never be shut. Its gates will never be shut. You're free to enter whenever you like. Just remember that you have some baggage to check at the door. No liquids, gels, or aerosols beyond this point. If you can live with that, when you can live with that, then you are free to enter. Maybe that is the judgment. It's a forceful reminder of what you can and what you cannot bring with you. And I know all of this flies in the face of our, of our binaries. Sheep go to heaven, goats go to hell. And that it's all riding on what you do right now. Will you live for the kingdom of heaven today? I find it so interesting, though, to wonder, what if we always have the choice, both now and in the life to come, that at any point we could decide to leave behind the baggage of this world and start living for the kingdom? At the end of the day, I have to think that's why Jesus told this story about the rich man and Lazarus, so that we might decide to live today as if we're already in heaven. Now, sure, we're going to fumble, we're going to fail, but we can get up tomorrow, we can try again. I just want to know if I ruin my chance, Jason asked me. Will I be shut out on the other side of the door forever? There's never an easy time to have that conversation, and Lord knows I am just as much in the dark as the next person. But here's what I'm holding on to. I'm holding on to that promise that the doors to that city will never be shut. I'll hold on to that promise for Jason, for myself, for you. Now the way may be narrow. Some of our baggage probably will not fit through the door. And it might be really difficult to put some of it down. But for now, it's enough to know that God's grace is deep and wide, wide enough for all of us, that the door is always open. That is enough for today. Amen.